Welcome to Glossonomia, conversations on the sounds of speech. I'm Eric Armstrong, and with me here is... Philip Thompson. Hi there. Hi. Um, Today, we get to talk about something interesting and different. We're talking about best practices in consonant clusters. And that should be interesting and different, because (laughs) we've just been very... um, Well, we've been very much talking about how things are done, rather than... Mm -hmm. Um, the way things happen within English for yeah. actors, and so we're yeah. we're kind of taking that role uh, today and talking about challenges for the actor uh, with regards to consonants. Yeah, and, and so we have a whole bunch of things, real mixed bag of things yeah. that we've collected that we want to talk about. But mostly about the way consonants bump up against each other. And this for actors is a real issue because intelligibility is affected most strongly by how the consonants are are made. And perhaps there is something that goes on around clusters of consonants, depending on context, depending on your background, depending on your accent, where some things may be more acceptable in certain contexts and less acceptable in other contexts, so that there may be some reduction of intelligibility or elevation, if you will, of uh, intelligibility by using different strategies, by adding a little bit more detail, including some consonants and losing them in other cases as a means of uh, allowing the the, the conversation to flow a little bit more quickly, to speak faster, to take a shortcut, if you will. Yeah, I think a lot of students, a lot of actors, when they start to think about how consonants will help them to be clear, they follow the principle more is better. Mm -hmm. And so they stop and kill every single consonant and then move on. And uh, that makes for a very long play. And it (laughs) makes every consonant equivalently important. And that's not actually true of language. No. And that there are some things that are perhaps preferred uh, generally in English that uh, we in certain environments we want some kinds of consonants to behave in a certain way and that's we if we try to uh, paint them all with the same broad brush then actually we're making ourselves less intelligible not more intelligible yes we're less intelligible when the audience walks out of the theater because we're being tedious, for example. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, now, perhaps knowing about that belaboring of consonants might be helpful if you're playing a tedious character. <laughs> yes. Who, that I, I play a tedious character in my daily life, so I'm constantly <laughs> working my consonants. Typecast yet again. <laughs> um, So uh, I know you have sort of a little song sheet for us to follow along, Phil. And this is Uh, not ordered in any particular way. But let me ask you if you can uh, give us maybe a a taste of of Catfer's organizational principles, since I know Mm -hmm. you'd read up on that. So Um, we're we're talking about uh, good old J.C. Catford and his book, A Practical Introduction to Phonetics, Second Edition. 
Um, and chapter six is called Co-Articulation and Sequences. And I, I found it very handy to read that chapter over before today's recording mm -hmm. um, in that he goes into extremely detailed uh, detail um, <laughs> uh, around... Maybe it would be good uh, to start with definitions of co-articulation and Yeah, and so co-articulations, um, uh, well, generally up to this point, except when we talked about affricates, yeah. we've been talking about uh, single places of articulation. So, for instance, a P sound is a bilabial stop, so that's on our lips, a single stop. The only, the only other consonant we've really talked about that has a double came up in the other symbols area, and it was booted into the other symbols area because it had a double articulation, and that was the wa, the what we would call a W sound, yeah, which is labial and velar. Yes. So um, uh, when we are looking at something like a uh, uh, a co-articulation, we might have a combination of, say, two consonants made in the same place and the same, uh, so we would call those homo-organic. Is there um, an extra O in there? Is it homo-organic or homo-organic? I bet it is homo-organic. I've been making it homo-organic to try to be clear, but I think you're right, it's homo-organic. But that is the etymology, it's the same organ. Yes, it is. Uh, as opposed to hetero-organic, which are different, yeah. yes? Um, and so, for instance, if we had a P and a K, both stops articulated at the same cut time, you would bring your lips together as if you were about to make a P sound, and you bring your, the velum and the, uh, the back of your tongue together to make a K. At the same time, you go up K, up K, and that would be a co-articulated P and K. Yeah. Uh, and similarly, you could do K and P, akpa, um, so that you can reverse the di direction of which goes first, uh, first or second. You could have a co-articulated, coordinate, double articulation of the same kind of uh, sound, so fricative plus fricative. So if you put a ch and a f together, you would get fr, fr. Or if you put a sh and a ch, together, as we did in a recent episode, you'd get that Swedish sound. Right. Um, so, uh, and, and when we did the other symbols, we also did the upside-down W, that sound that we have in French words like lui, uh, different from Louis, the guy's name. I think you just said upside-down W, but of course oh, it's an upside-down H. H, yes. Thank you. So, difference between LW Louis, the guy's name, and upside down, H, lui, him, L-U-I. So those are uh, double or coordinate co-articulations. And then there are uh, s uh, primary and secondary articulations where we have a, uh, an articulation and we add to that an articulation that is of a different rank. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, Catford uh, ranks closures from the most closed to the least closed. So the ranking goes from stop to trill to fricative 
to approximate, and finally resonant, which is vowels, in other words. Which is conveniently the same as our consonant chart, which starts with a row of most closed and opens up as it goes down. Right, as you go down that pulmonic chart, it's getting, uh, the rank is getting lower. So if we were to put a stop with a fricative, the the stop would be the primary articulation and the fricative would be considered secondary. Okay. Now a lot of times the, the secondary articulation is merely an approximant and uh, so we have things like uh, a labialization or a palatalization and those ization things are the secondary articulations. And just to be clear, we're not here talking about a sequence of no. one to the next. They're simultaneous in a way. Right, co-articulations. And we don't really have many of these in English, do we, Phil? No. I remember when we talked about w and hua, we talked about the history of them being from labialized stops in Old English, and they developed, uh, or in Proto-Indo-European or some such thing. But no, they've sort of been replaced. We, we do have Africans, obviously, and not all languages have affricates. Uh, we have... And, and they are a kind of, a subset of co-articulations. Yeah. Um, they are a stop with a fricative. We have nasalization, but we really have nasalization of vowels. So that's a co-articulation of a kind of nasal release with oral release. But that doesn't right. really fit into this category. Yeah, you could have nasalization of a lateral approximant, um, but probably most people wouldn't notice. There is pre-nasal release. Uh, a, a colleague of mine is named Gugi Wadiongo, and uh, that first consonant is a G, but it's a pre-nasalized G, Gugi. Uh, it's not a sequence, Ngugi, it's Ngugi. It's very hard to do. But in English, we don't really have that sort of thing. Right. So these are important for learning other languages and also for accents where people would take a co-articulation and apply it to a sequence in English. So for instance, if you ha had a speaker who spoke, say they were Greek and they were talking about tzatziki, they would actually say tzatziki with the actual Greek pronunciation. They wouldn't say tzatziki the way many English speakers And they speak. might, because I don't think there's an Africa ch in Greek. They might say, do you want some tzis? They might use their Africa for... In hours. Yeah. Right. Um, so uh, I think that, you know, we're getting the idea here at least. So I, I highly recommend this book. Um, and then, um, and then we get into sort of uh, uh, what they call homo organic or home organic. Let's try that again. Home organic sound sequences, and that's things like geminids. Uh, now, if you know your uh, your astrological signs, <laughs> you'll know that Gemini means the twins, and so geminate consonants are paired consonants, the same consonant back to back. Um, I always think of Italian when I think of Gemini yeah. consonants because it, Italian has this as a feature. So a word like uh, penne, that, that pasta kind, P-E-N-N-E. Uh, and the spelling reflects this doubling. Yes, doesn't it? So we penne, you should have kind of like a double time yeah. on that N sound. Or otto, 
the stop portion is lengthened before the release. Right, and that's the number eight, octo. Yeah. So uh, that's a geminate sound, and there, there might be a, you could argue we have geminates when we have the end of a word going into the beginning of a word. Um, so uh, uh, if so you were to say we, fat Tony, fat Tony, we have the stop on the first one and the release on the second. Yeah. Homo, homo organic because they're made in the same place. Yeah. But we have a little pause. Yeah, and we, uh, well, we can get into some of those sequences a little bit later. So at least we know that that's the notion of gemination, uh, yeah. which between words happens an awful lot in English, in, in, in formal speech, and, and on stage as well. Uh, just to sort of round it out, the, the other things that we've already talked on are things like lateral plosion when we were doing our L episodes, mm -hmm. lateral plosion, so in things like little t exploding into L, yeah. nasal plosion, like bitten, um, and uh, you, you mentioned prenasalized stops. So, so that, maybe we can leave that. Yeah, I think that covers the, at least some of the terminology and the structure of possibilities from Catford. And, and to summarize very briefly, you can do consonants at the same time, or you can do some version of a sequence of consonants, either that one explodes into the other, or that there's some strategy for getting out, like lateral or nasal plosion uh, of a stop, or you just have a sequence where right. one sound happens, and then the next one happens. I think there's a helpful thing that he shows in one graph that uh, the, the difference between a co-articulation and a sequence isn't necessarily cut and dried. There is a yeah. possibility that you might be aiming for a co-articulation and it's sort of halfway in between. Yeah. Um, or, pardon me, uh, you're aiming for a sequence and you say them in a more co-articulated manner. Um, there is another kind of co-articulation and that's a, an anticipatory co-articulation where they aren't homo-organic but that you're anticipating the next consonant and so your mouth is beginning to shape the next sound while you're doing the first one. I, I think of a word like twine, mm -hmm. that the, the W sound requires lip rounding, and so you're going to lip round the T while you're saying it. So you're not going twine, you're going twine, and your lips are already in that W place. Yeah. Similarly, when you say something like speak, speak, the S is is affected by the anticipation of the bilabial nature of the P, so that your S may be more lip-rounded than if you were saying something like ski. And these, these effects are usually invisible. We don't really notice that we're doing them. Yeah, you only notice them if people don't do them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's stick now with aspiration behavior, because a lot of the interesting things that happen happen with stops. And stops, of course, uh, their full name is stop plosives. So they have the stopping, the not releasing, then they have the releasing, and then they have perhaps a puff of air or aspiration after it. And that puff of air can have an effect on the following consonant. So, right. uh, and yeah, we don't always get that puff of air, do we? So sometimes when we're butting up against another consonant, for instance, we might not release that, or at the end of an expression, we frequently don't release that. Generally speaking, I would say that it is linked to the 
degree of effort or energy, which is why we very frequently, in English at least, aspirate stop plosives when they are moving directly into a vowel in a stressed syllable. Mm-hmm. So well, we might say cat and explode the k with some air, cat, but not really explode the t. Right. Uh, so if that aspiration is moving directly into uh, a lower ranking consonant, uh, an approximant, and I'm thinking particularly of r, w, or l, or, or y, uh, mm-hmm. then that consonant can become devoiced. So... Mm-hmm. Can you give me an example? Yes. Yeah. So if I say the word rip, there's uh, uh, an alveolar approximate at the beginning of that. If I say the word tip, I'm probably going to put a little pers- burst of air there. But if I do trip, that segment of er is made into trip. And so the aspiration of the T is essentially going into the R nature of it. Right. So we're anticipating the R overlapping with the aspiration of the T. So that is, in a sense, a co-articulation. The lack of phonation is the articulation of the aspiration, the flow of air, and it's done simultaneously with what would ordinarily be a voiced approximate. I'd say also we probably are doing a little bit more stricture and making it more like a fricative, uh, mm. somewhere in that boundary territory. So we have r becoming trip. Uh, we have w becoming twin, right. or queen, or please. I don't. <laughs> I can't think of a word uh, that has a p w p. sequence in it. Uh, what next? Yeah, uh, yeah. might be tune. Tune, yes. So you tune. Uh, what did I do? What? I think I did. Twine. Ah, l. So uh, light plight. Plight, right? Plight. And it seems to me that when, as people are being more emphatic, they may dial that up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so plight, uh, quickly skipping over it, but the plight yeah. of someone, you might really stretch out that plight. The other strategy there is to do a syllabic L, please, to, to please. separate it and make it not a cluster, but a sequence. That is a sequence right. of syllables. So. Yeah, in this case, we do, we can monitor for that aspiration by holding a finger in front of our lips. And when we say P, we can feel that burst of air. We can feel that it's different from B. If we say Li, we hear no, feel no aspiration. But if we say Pli, we'll feel the aspiration continuing through that L sound. Yes, yes. So, um... What happens if we tack on an S in front of that? Aha, uh-huh. everything changes. Uh, that's really, again, because of this sort of managing the energy of the airflow, that the mm. S is already fast-moving air. Mm. So we've sort of spent our aspiration beforehand. So right. we might say so, rip, no problem, strip, but if we say, or rather trip, but if we say strip, 
we're not going to really devoice that R. And the, the, if we can back up a step, if mm -hmm. we put S in front of T, like in the word like stop, yeah. we've already lost that aspiration. S sucks out the aspiration of these stop plosives. So stop, uh, spin, or skin, we're going to lose. We're not saying spin or stop, stop or skin. Um, that aspiration goes away. So when we put the R in, similarly, there's not going to be R. But there might be more R than there, w you know, like when you say, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, I'm trying to think of a word where there's like strict, sticked, that's not, well, I suppose sticked. Uh, <laughs> stick. I sticked strict. that landing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or took a stick to him. I sticked him. Uh, um, so uh, strict, I think there may be a little bit of, uh, of that devoicing on the R, strict, uh, whereas sticked, there's really no aspiration. And really, we, there's an illusion that we suffer under because we see this orderly sequence of segments. But all sequences of segments have some sort of co-articulation or blending or... Yes. Uh, if we, it's really valuable sometimes to use some audio editing software to try to manipulate the sounds of speech, mm. uh, either to slow it down so you can really hear, is that R voiced all the way through or devoiced all the way through, but also to remove the S. So if you were to say strict or sticked. Here, let's do st struck and stuck. Struck, stuck. Now, because I'm editing this episode, I am going to insert right here the, those same sounds. Struck, stuck. Now, if I remove the S's from those two, listen to them now. Struck, duck. I think you'll hear that even though I've edited out the S, the change to the voicing quality of the following sound is still there. So you so can Sorry, if, we, if I may, and you're doing all this great editing, <laughs> uh, if you're comparing stuck and tuck, if you chopped off the S yeah. of stuck and tuck... Which will happen right now. Duck and tuck... Good. There may be a slight difference that stuck is almost like saying duck. I think that's right. We, we have these expectations of the aspiration we ought to be hearing, and when we don't hear that aspiration, we interpret it as the voiced version of the plosive. I guess that was a little uh, off the beaten track. Uh, yes, we, we've essentially talked about voice onset time, yeah. haven't we? And we've, we've talked about that before. We have. Uh, so that's a favorite. The behavior of those sequences, those sequences of S, plosive, voiced approximate. Right. Uh, another feature that I think is related to this with an STR sequence uh, is what I would call postalveolarization. Postalveolarization, it's even hard to say, uh, which is to make an S sound more like a SH sound. I suppose you could in say. In this cluster. In the cluster. In this, so, right. in the word strength, it's common, I think, and becoming increasingly more common to hear people say strength. Yes. Now, what they're doing there, I think, is 
beginning a retroflex or postalveolar position for their R, and they're starting it on the S. S yes. Strength. But people Another do, anticipatory co-articulation. Absolutely. I, I think there's something of this on the word true as well, that sometimes the position of that post-alveolar, of that alveolar approximate R is slightly post-alveolar, and when it's de-voiced, truck becomes ch, chuck, or truck. Truck. So the T-R becomes a ch sound. When my son was really little, um, Fisher Price came out with a line of trucks called Chuck. <laughs> and they were all Chucks yeah. of various kinds. So, so we do get some post-alveolarization, and that starts to sound like another phoneme that we have. Mm -hmm. And... I do think that when an actor is working on this, uh, it may seem like a sort of meaningless and impossible task. But I do think that there's some value in working towards not pre-articulating, because you're moving through a wider range of possibilities. Mm. I, would, I would also and say... And also there's a huge bias against doing it. Well, there's that. You don't want to send people out into the world unaware that they're doing something that a certain percentage of the population hates. Right. That will use as a reason not to hire them. Exactly. So I think, though, uh, the, the point I was trying to get at is that there's some sort of inherent value in working that sequence as st -r strength. Because I think that part of that post-alveolar pre-assimilation is a closing of the jaw. And I think when the jaw is slightly more open, it's easier to do that sequence, s, t, r. And opening the jaw is a separate virtue that we might aim towards. Uh, it yeah, I agree absolutely that, that that is true. It's just that S is one of those sounds where most of us have to close our jaws to make a reasonable S. Exactly. So, so it's a matter of how long we stay in that position then. Yeah. So strength, strength, I'm getting open to the other consonants, making the consonants, consonants more distinct from each other, and therefore, I hope, getting more linguistic information into the stream. Right. And I, I suspect that uh, molar R is a big culprit here in, in drawing that S back. Yeah. And so perhaps another way of looking at it is questioning the use of in a in a cluster with an alveolar stop whether molar r is going to be distorting that alveolar consonant and so perhaps a, a, a more alveolar articulation of r might help to reduce that uh, post-alveolarization of the s. So uh, I, I talk about this when I'm working with Dudley Knight that in aiming towards sounds you might choose for the stage for the purposes of intelligibility, we might look at the way a certain choice affects the oral posture independently. Tongue retraction, jaw closure, these things are on balance going to make it harder to understand. Uh, and then we might look at 
the way in which it gives information. So assimilation is a reduction of information, maybe unneeded information, but it's a reduction of information. And then finally, it's how it gets interpreted, what it, how it characterizes us. Yes. And so in this case of strength becoming strength, it's having an effect on all three of those things. It is, it is. probably closing you up a little bit. It's making the sounds less distinct from each other. Maybe a little bit because the S is becoming more R-ish. Uh, that's a stretch, I think, or a stretch. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and then finally, there are people who hate it and will make conscious or unconscious judgments about you based on that sound. Right. And, I mean, whether or not we want to cater to people's hatred or not, <laughs> uh, there's certainly, one would hope that actors would want to have the ability to have do the appropriate sound for another accent than their own. Yeah. And uh, uh, I think the range of accents where STR gets pronounced stra is actually fairly small. We might want to utilize people's prejudices to yes. give them ideas about us. And, and so the, the option that we're always going for is to be able to do both and to be able to deploy them at will for artistic reasons. Right. All right. That takes care of that. Uh, I want to go back into this question of geminids, although strictly speaking, uh, when you're talking about the way you move between one word and another, it's not really a geminid. But if I say, as we said before... And that's because there's a word boundary exactly. there. So fat Tony is a stop-hold release. Uh, this summer is a linger, but it behaves just like we deal with geminids in Italian. There's some way in which the idea of the first consonant is hung onto and preserved for this second consonant. And we do this all the time this summer, and we give enough information to the listener to, for them to know that there are two S's there. Right. Now, there are a lot of people who believe quite firmly that when we have these twinned consonants butting up against one another, that we really should put insert something, a little pause, perhaps, mm -hmm. this summer, um, so that we articulate these doubled consonants more. Um, and I've certainly done exercises with people and had people emphatically tell me, Shakespeare wrote it that way so that summer stands out more. It's a good thing that people have Shakespeare on speed dial to answer those questions. He, he, he you know... Uh, he texts like, uh, me in the middle of rehearsal. God. So, uh, let's take this, these two things. Uh, this summer, Fat Tony, I don't know what he did, but we'll come up with another Geminate for that. Uh, sizes to you. This summer, or I'll do it this way, this summer, Fat Tony will... Overweight lock. Tony. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Differently sized Tony. Uh, now, I could do little stops in there. No, I'll, let me start by doing huge stops. This summer, Fat Tony will lie. He's a liar, too, Fat Tony. This is terrible. I could put a small stop in there. This summer, Fat Tony will lie. Or I could just lengthen, This summer, Fat Tony will lie. I could even get rid of them all together. This summer, Fat Tony will, will lie. Will lie. 
But I think that most listeners at that point would say, wait a minute, you're changed. You've taken away my signal that there are two consonants there. And uh, will I starts to sound like will I. Exactly. We get confused about where the word boundaries are at that point. So that's, we all of us have strategies for letting the listener know where those word boundaries are, or how, how to group and parse the pieces. Uh, and we use those. The, the big guns, the big guns, are to separate, or with the and plosive, to aspirate in between. And I think the big guns puts a lot of emphasis on the word, the first word of the pair. Mm -hmm. So if I say big guns, I'm making big really big. Yeah. Um, that it, that, that what's important about that expression is that it's, it's a large gun <laughs> rather than that it's a large gun. Yeah. Uh, big gun, I, I might want that extra G, whereas big gun, uh, as opposed to a big rifle, um, I, I, I could throw that first G away and I wouldn't yeah. miss it so much. There's always an interaction between that task of letting the audience hear what the sounds are and where the word boundaries are, and letting the audience know which words are more important. And, and it's certainly part of an actor's uh, there are a lot of choices in there. This summer, you, you could act your way through all of those. And that's sure. usually what successful actors try to do. They, they try to get the consonant information out by coming up with tiny little acting fragments to, to give a reason for that articulation. Rather than just blindly applying a rule. Exactly. So. There's a range of possibility in terms of breaking things up. There's another subcategory of geminates which are, I guess, not homorganic, uh, that there can be some assimilation. If I say, but they, I'm probably dentalizing the T, stopping it on the teeth before beginning the fricative they. So essentially, we get this uh, particularly when we're anticipating uh, a dental consonant, yeah. th or the, all the alveolar consonants that might come before would become dentalized. Yes. So we get it in a word like tenth. The N in tenth, doesn't have to be at a word boundary, uh, is going to be dentalized. Yes. Because we're, it's easier that way. Uh, th this sort of happens, th and this, now we're back to uh, assimilation. Articulation. Uh, when you say handbag and you say ham bag, right. nobody thinks it's so a that, bag of that's ham. That's different, right? An assimilation is different from a co-articulation. An assimilation, yes. you actually change the preceding consonant to match the art, the place of the following one. Yeah. So, so ham bag. Saying ham bag, handbag is uh, co-articulating and pre-articulating the nasalization component of the consonant, but still keeping the consonant the same. Right. All right. So I think that's word boundaries. Uh, in the case of unvoiced plosives, that little separation can be taken care of by aspiration. Uh, and when we talked about t and, and all the unvoiced plosives, I think we talked about levels of aspiration. Mm -hmm.
Now, uh, when we have the final stop plosive, like I'm going to get that right, mm -hmm. um, the a lot of times we don't, right? I'm going to get that right. Mm -hmm. We just don't release that. Often I've heard it argued that for the theater, that unreleased articulation at the end of an utterance is not as useful because we want to hear that plosion as a means of signaling that T because the space of the acoustics of a theater make hearing the subtle detail of the closure not enough and so um, it's been argued that in theater work that you should always release your final plosives. It's certainly uh the effect of seeing a really wonderful actor doing that deftly is really strong. Uh, we actually had Gerard Logan, uh, who is an RSC actor who tours a, a one-man performance of The Rape of Lucrece. He came and did that performance here for us at UC Irvine. And it was a small theater, but he exploded every single consonant, every, every single plosive. And yet, it just seemed like the gestures of a geisha. It just seemed perfectly poised and not a hard job that an actor had to do, but something that a character delighted in. Mm. And so that high level of activity can be great. And right. an actor, we assume, who can do that high level of activity might be able to relax it a bit and have variable activity. Right. Certain dexterousness that yeah. uh, we, we think of as a, sort of a tour de force. And so I do understand teaching actors to overdo every single final consonant or final plosive in this case. Uh, well, overdo or do. Do, yes. <laughs> To overdo before you just do to right uh, to do to do it as strongly as you possibly can and then back up and see if you can do it lightly. But I I think it's important for the actor to understand that there is a range of possibilities and that they they can choose is not quite the right word they can set and forget their linguistic imaginations so that they use an appropriate level of detail for what they're working on. We don't have to pay Ron Popeil anything for that, do we? No. Set it and forget exactly. it. Exactly. That was his thing for his chicken baster or something. I like set and forget. I, I, I try to forget as much as possible. What else do you have on your song sheets for us? Well, I have here glide cluster reduction with a frowny face. Uh, that's because... Uh, J.C. Wells. What is a glide cluster? Yeah, J.C. Wells in Accents of English talks about glide clusters uh, being the sequence of wuh, huh, and what's the other one? What's the other glide cluster? Oh, huh, yeah, and huh, wuh. What, yes. Uh, or what, what's another? Oh, human. That's a good one. Human. And yes. we've talked about this before. That I don't really think that uh, anybody pronounces those as a sequence of consonants, but rather as a devoiced fricative, or xia. So, fine. 
that you can call it glide cluster reduction, but it doesn't have any bearing on what we're talking about here uh, because I don't think it's a true cluster. Another cluster that's, I think, really important for actors to manage, partially because we're moving back and forth between uh, RP and American accents, is managing Yod clusters. Mm. Uh, and we've sort of touched on that with the ST uh, things. So we're, we're talking here about working with actors who have Yod dropping as their sort of yeah. standard operating procedure. So they're going to say a word like um, tune or duke as their normal and yeah. they're not sure when they should be inserting a yod, picking it back up if you will um, and it, the number of times where I've heard actors say things like uh, too many times yes they're over applying um, hyper correcting yeah. it uh, really kind of grates your teeth a little bit uh, sets them on edge yes uh, Certainly, there are words in which all North Americans do a liquid U or uh, yod, like beautiful music. Uh, we don't have the problem of people saying beautiful music. But adding to that category other words like tune or even lute or suit, uh, that's a it is a cluster of consonants, and one of those consonants is being removed. And so you could think of it as a, a reduction, an assimilation. Mm -hmm. uh, the other word for, for this, there are two separate things. There's yod dropping and yod coalescence. So you could say right. tune, or you could say tune, or you could say tune. Uh, which is similar to that TR thing that we were talking about before. Right. That we're it's a true, true, true tune. I don't know of any accent that does both of those things. Uh, yeah, me either. So, yes, our students in North America, I would say, sometimes have difficulty applying the yod in places where the, their rule set doesn't say they should. Yes. like Duke. And I agree with you 100% that it's a worse problem to over-apply it to tu and much adieu about nothing. Uh, uh, they do some yod coalescence. All of us do yod coalescence on the word picture, for example. Uh, what you doing is a place. Education. Yeah. So that's another case of where you draw the line. How... Do you say issue or issue? Mm -hmm. uh, some of issue or tissue. Yeah. So there's some that are in debate, some that are distinctly different between American and British accents, and some that are settled issues, like picture. Right. Picture, you would never get that, I suppose, if you went far enough back. Well, it's interesting that th it hasn't been a steady progression because my understanding is that Shakespeare did more yod coalescence. So when Iago's talking about cashier, casho, it's meant to be more of a pun, that casho was the way it was pronounced, not casio. Mm. Uh, meh, I think that's interesting. At least it, it, it gets rid of the notion that we're sort of on a decline. <laughs> it, right. Uh, 
we're moving towards less and less activity. The strategy of coalescence, of reduction, is always available to us, and it's sometimes very useful. So what about picture for a picture? Well, that's a further reduction of the cluster, isn't it? That the mm -hmm. t gets pulled out of that because ch contains a t. Uh, so we're just going to that t, picture. No, I'm, I'm talking about losing the k, picture. Oh, right, picture, yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. So that, uh, that cluster of k plus t-esh uh, is more complicated, and so we cut the corner and we just go picture. Yeah, it's interesting that because people do also take the k out of the k-t sequence. I always think about Ira Glass saying, Act one. Act one. Or, so he loses the K and not the T. He's not saying at one. Exactly. He's saying act one. Here, I'll, I'll lean in and do it like this. I'm Ira Glass. Act two of our show. But it's even more than that. Act two. And there's more monotone. Yeah. Everything's monotone. Act two. People and their cats. <laughs> um, Maybe a little up glide. Yeah. At the end of a phrase. A little up glide. Always a little up glide, Ira Glass. <laughs> He's great. He's easy to character. We love him. Yes. We love him. Uh, so he, I'm Canadian. We don't even get NPR, and I love Ira Glass. Of course. You, you got to love Ira Glass. So, uh, yes, we're talking here about reduction of clusters, assimilation in clusters, and in the case of kt or kch, the k in act is the only thing left. And in picture, the k has left. So there should be terminology. Is that progressive and regressive assimilation? I can never get those straight. And it doesn't matter. So that happens all the time. And it happens, as we've said, as part of language development. Uh, maybe in the future, nobody will say act, but they'll all say ack. And then the big maybe. question is, will they say acker or actor? I would be surprised. There's probably something that keeps the K and T in actor because of the syllable boundary. I think that's right. Uh, here's one that uh, is on my list, and I apologize, you don't have the list, so I can just ramble on here. That a lot of folks remove R in th, r sequences. So instead of throw, they'll say tho. I threw out my back. And it is a sort of a southern U.S. feature. Right. I never get that in Canada, unless people are imitating southern accents. And I think it's about the way they manage roticity, that for a lot of non-rhotic southern accents, the R, as we've said before, is sort of like still there. It's a sort of very lightly bunched far, far. And so I could do the same thing in through, through, because there's not really an alveolar component to that, it's not convenient to say through, to draw the tongue back through the R zone. I'm going to be doing it with the back of my tongue, so through. It just doesn't manage to get there. Doesn't have enough impact for us to hear it, maybe. Yes, so it could be, there could be some gesture, but it's not audible.
And it's possible that there was that at one point, and then it has evolved to the point where yeah. it's just the pronunciation of that word is just thu now. Uh, you just uh, stumbled upon the next part of this, because pronunciation, uh, mm. sometimes that cluster is changed be because the identity of that R changes from a pre-vocalic to a post-vocalic R. So instead of production, you might say production, and if you are non-rhotic, you'll say production. Right. Sometimes I think in that case it's almost as if the R is being syllabic, per production, yeah, production, yeah. that that um, they're losing the vowel and that per production. And um, a, production. a syllabic R and a rhoticized schwa are could be seen as identical. They could, couldn't they? And we've talked about that before. We have. Uh, I think we have a set of final consonant clusters, but I want to just stop it because we're talking about R's here and say that a lot of folks drop post-vocalic L's, so mm -hmm. vulnerable will become vulnerable or vulnerable. And that is the loss of a cluster, but it's really the vowel situation that's doing that. Uh, well, and also some people have an L that isn't very alveolar in yeah. its nature, right? It's almost entirely velar, vul vulnerable, vulnerable, uh, that uh, if that dark L, because it's vul, that's a, a dark L, a, a post-vocalic L, um, uh, that they're really setting up to uh, for a dark L, they may ultimately lose that L altogether, and then it just becomes vulnerable. They lose the velarization too. And, and that's really a case where the oral posture has done something, because L and N are homorganic. It's easy, vuln, vuln. L, N sequences shouldn't be difficult because the tongue tip is in the same place. But it's because of the, the draw of the backness of that L that we lose the L there. So I... Now, please. I was going to say that perhaps this leads you to think of... Uh, uh, another opposite kind of thing, and that's where L creeps in, like per uh, articulations like both. Oh yeah, and that like that, that we've got this velarized L coming in that it's not in the spelling. So, um, uh, what's the word for it? Epenthetic. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Epenthesis. It's the, the appending, adding something, even though it's written with an e e pen. Yeah. E p e n. So, yeah, the, uh, a person might say both, and they might also in the same accent say wolf. Uh, wolf. Yeah. Almost wolf, yeah. right? By the way, I'm hearing a slight echo, and I'm wondering if that's going to be in the recording. So I'll say this to our listeners, because I'm not going to go in and fix it. I don't think I have the capability. If there is an echo throughout this, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And if there isn't? We're paranoid. Good. Because we want to make the best audio we can. It is true. Uh, to remind listeners, Phil records on his side, I record on my side, and we hear each other through headphones that aren't actually hooked up to the recording process. So sometimes we hear things while we're Skyping each other that don't actually make yeah, it into the recording. That's absolutely true. Okay. Final consonant clusters. I'm thinking particularly about uh, the 
gth, like length, strength. Right. Uh, we get length, strength. Uh, also fifth, becoming fifth. Uh, so in those cases, uh, the length and strength, that we have a complex articulation, alveolar back to velar yeah. forward to dental articulation, sort of front back front, quite a complex articulation. And so the cut the corner, taking a more efficient process of dropping out the velar is, is easier mm -hmm. to articulate length rather than length. That's much more complicated. So, uh, you know, a, a lot of people, I often hear my students sort of beating themselves up for having a lazy mouth. <laughs> um, and uh, I always say, well, you know, it's also very efficient what you're doing. Um, you're, you know, you're, you're making it in a very quick way. Yeah. Um, and that's why our mouths take these shortcuts is because it's easier. Yeah, I mean, I think if you were to put me in a dance class, I would have the same experience. I cannot get my weight onto that foot. I can't do that turn uh, because I'm not conditioned to it. I'm either too tight or too weak to make that. So that it works great for me in daily life. I sit down, I walk around. <laughs> I don't need to do those motions. Uh, but it's not out of laziness. It's about what we're accustomed to. Right. And, you know, length and strength are not going to be confused with any other Indeed. word. Now, so do you, that's not a problem. Do you have students who have that pronunciation? I think I never I have that. Oh, really? Yeah, I do have people who say length and strength. I, I won't go into any conjecture about why that might be. Because uh, your students are better than mine. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, I think what I'm saying is that <laughs> I do the recruiting, and I think I don't like uh, that pronunciation so much. That it would You're about to get into my program. Could you say this word here? I've written it exactly. at length. There you go. Come on in. No, length. Well, You're with the goats over there going to hell. There is a, I, I have a little unofficial list of words that kill my heart. And, and really, it only has one word on it right now, and that's warrior. Ah, warrior. It's the loss of that. And that's really a, not a cluster, but a sequence. Warrior. It's the same process of assimilation, warrior, uh, that you're skipping one of the steps there. But that one hurts me. We, we all have these word loathings, right? Frustrated really gets me, I have to I, say. Yes, frustrated. that bothers me as well. And that's the same uh, R dropping in a cluster that we had in Foo. Right. It was very frustrating, frustrating getting through this production. And that's not a southern thing. I get frustrated all the time. Yeah, I, I, I think that when we hear those things, we're hearing such a divergence from the, what we know to be the spelled sequence that we yes. have a little frisson. All right, I think that uh, we're leaving one great one for the last, and that's mm. st. So these are our lasts. And that STS cluster uh, is its a little different than what we've been doing. It's, it's homogenic in a way, but it's fricative, plosive, fricative. Right. And so sometimes people leave out the, the plosive, right? Yeah. So they say last instead of lasts. Yeah. 
There are ghosts in oh. here. Ghosts in here. So to make sure to check that off, to get that sound. Um, and uh, we were running through the, our show order before we started, and I brought up the, that uh, uh, we can't throw the baby out with the Edith Skinner bathwater, mm -hmm. um, that she did have some interesting terminology for this. Yeah. She used the terms um, zap check and swing chop to differentiate two different kinds of uh, S stop S. Um, the, f the swing chop one is just the plurals like we were just talking mm -hmm. about and the zap check is when you have a word that ends in say st followed by another word that begins with an s so the example would be like first song and that's different because when we have something like beasts the st explodes straight into the s of the plural whereas when there's a word boundary we don't release that yeah. t in the same way just how we sort of started when we were beginning the conversation talking about um, the aspiration of the final T. And really, it, it is the way final T's and, and other plosives behave that helps. It's variable enough in English based on stress and word boundaries that we learn something from hearing it. Uh, so West Side Story, West Side Story, if I'm doing a strong West Side, I'm telling the listener that it's side instead of yes. west side. Uh, so it, it's really, I mean, I think what she's observing there is that we differentiate based on where the boundary is. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they're cool names, zap check. You're just doing a, Sweet you're job. checking, you're stopping yeah. with a little zap. Yeah, you 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 zap the and then you check off the <laughs> s of the next word. Yeah. Whereas beasts, you swing through that lengthened first s beasts, and then you uh, chop off the s on the end. So. And I I probably would not fuss too much about this with students because I think that they'll probably take care of it themselves because they have an intuition about where those word boundaries are. Uh, I agree. You know, there's one, this reminds me of one other thing that uh, I wanted to talk about, and we talked about this epenthesis before, mm -hmm. and that is uh, an epenthesis that happens usually between a nasal going into a fricative. So the word dance mm -hmm. comes to mind that, for me, I, I can't say that word without a T. I always say dance. Yeah. Uh, there is no, it's so hard for me to say dance. I, I, uh, I have to lengthen the end to say dance. And uh, uh, I, uh, I'm behind on watching uh, Game of Thrones. Everybody else is, they're watching the third season right now. And uh, I swore that I would read the books before I watched the series. And I only just started reading the books. So I'm currently watching the first series. And of course, with a, a a series like that. The names are, of course, in the book. You never know how they're going to pronounce it mm -hmm. as a TV show. So finally, I'm getting a sense, oh, that's how they pronounce that word. Uh, and there's a character, one of the daughters of Lord Stark. Her name is S-A-N-S-A. -A. Uh, and so this has this cluster, N followed by S. So uh, many of the speakers pronounce her name Sansa. And to me, that sounds 
a bit like someone who pronounces T with a T, yeah. the Tentai Turtles saying Santa, <laughs> like Santa Claus. Uh, and so at one point, one of the people said Santa. And I was like, ho, 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 there's Santa. Uh, it just really sounded to yeah. me like they were saying Santa. Um, and, uh, you know, it would only happen if your accent was northern and likely to be one where you would say t for t, yeah. that 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 epenthesis would sound like the same thing. Yeah, I think uh, if you say, I like my friends ziti, <laughs> uh, friends ziti, uh, you're doing both the same sound, z, z, z. But nobody's going to have difficulty hearing you if you say pants, friends, or pants, friends. I suppose you might say that the one with a plosive in there, or with an affricate essentially, uh, has a little bit more sharpness to it. There's a little more energy so, in it. Now, you're talking about words that actually have T's in them, but if you have like a pan full, or two pans filled with pairs of pants, uh, pans of pants. There's a voicing you... difference there, too. Right, yeah. Pans. Uh, pans. But I think if I said pans, I just did it, so maybe I don't know what I do. Uh, I think that I don't do the epithetic D in there. Pans. 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 Do I make a distinction between pans and friends. I can't tell because I'm observing myself. Friends. Now. Yeah, probably you do make a difference. Pans. I think going to the voiced sound gets rid of this epenthesis. It has to go to a voiceless sound. Uh, and so something like fence. Uh, um, but, but our plurals are voiced, so... Right. Fence. Yeah, fence would be fence, wouldn't it? So, so I, that's not I think be a problem. that if our students know what it feels like to stop and explode or to stop and flow into the fricative, then they have available to them a choice. Mm -hmm. They can say friends, Romans, or they can say friends, Romans, not Romans. Uh, they can make those distinctions. But I, yes. I do think that those things get set on autopilot pretty quickly, that almost immediately you're improvising the articulatory possibilities, trying to get as much activity into there as possible, not nickel and diming. I mean, whether it's Romans or Romans, I just did it. Friends, Romans, countrymen. It doesn't matter, I think, finally. And I think that my difference in energy of articulation is going to variably make it an African or an epithetic mm -hmm. D or not. And I think that that's okay. Now, you bring up this voice plural. Yeah. And this is another thing yeah. that, uh, before a pause often we get devoicing. So we get friends, Romans, countrymen. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's 
another thing that people may argue would dial up intelligibility friends romans countrymen to to make sure that it is a z as you say or a z as i would say um do you think it does well, dial it up it's interesting because in terms of audibility, the unvoiced one is much more audible than the voiced one. Hmm. And, and so it's a question of whether or not we're hearing the target phoneme. Uh, friends... And the unvoiced one is more audible because s carries better. I, is I that think right? that's right, because there's more sibilance in it and it's not being muted by the voicing. Right. So you could argue that the S version is more audible right. but if you're hearing something well that gives you a mixed signal about what the word is then it's less intelligible because it ties up your brain power as a listener mm. so I think that the argument to make sure that those are voiced may be more aesthetic than mathematical I agree and we're artists we're making art here so we're allowed to be aesthetic in our choices we just ought to be aware that we're making those choices. Uh, and that's what I always object to uh, in the notion that there's a single way that one must deal with these questions. Hmm. There's one last one on the STS thing, and that is this rarity of a st, -st uh, a double st. And uh, this is uh, the Duke in Measure for Measure. He's talking to Claudio, and he says, For thou existst on many a thousand grains. I just noticed that I didn't do the D at the end of thousand. For thou existst on many a thousand grains. Uh, and I want to not do an epithetic D and grains. Uh, the argument for, for thou existst on many, to put an extra st there, because it's really existist. Exactly. And you're trying to elide it to lose an extra syllable. Exactly, to fit into the meter. You have a few strategies available. You can say, screw that, I'm going to add a syllable, for thou existest on many a thousand grains. Or you can say, for thou exists on many a thousand grains, modernizing the grammar and making it entirely right. intelligible. Or... For thou existest, for thou existest <laughs> on many a thousand grains, which I am personally not very capable of doing fluently, but that right. means it's a good thing to work on. So we worked on the idea of saying existest, uh, and then putting the T on ton, existest on, yes, existest on. I think you're I still do doing a tiny shadow vowel in there. Exists yes. on. <laughs> exists on. Yes, exists on. There's exists a, another one that's on. not quite so bad. Uh, Caliban says, uh, She as far surpasseth, surpasseth Sycorax as greatst doth least. Grace. Grace. <laughs> Duh. So, grace. No, oh, I can't even say it. Great, great. So, uh, so we have T S, great. T S T. Yeah. D. Yes. T S T D. Great. Duh. 
Wow. So those things are, are little traps that you can give to students and say, I want to hear every one of those sounds, and then I want you to do it like it ain't no thing. And that's where you find that sort of sweet spot of sufficient linguistic detail with fluency. Right. Fun. That, by the way, is the end of my list of consonant clusters, but that was just one pulled out of my head. I, I'm sure there are other clusters that cause people difficulty. And Yes, and so we would yes. love it if people would email us at glossonomia gmail.com and tell us their consonant clusters of choice or of frustration that frustration. they would be willing to share with us. Yes. Exactly. So we're getting into the the great unknown of this podcast where really we do need the audience to say I have this challenge and I'd like you to talk about how to deal with that challenge and we stand ready we do on the wall <laughs> protecting Westeros from the others good I, okay. I'm glad that you're catching up because we have to stop the podcast and talk about it now Okay, well, this has been a fun one, and uh, I look forward to the next time. Likewise. Take care. Uh, adios. <laughs>